and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. My name is Brooke McCallery. My name is Ben McCallery. <laughs> welcome to episode four. We're halfway through the season. We, Maybe. I don't know. Look, there's probably going to be nine episodes this season, so oh, we're almost halfway. There you go. It's wonderful to be here. It is. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for the great support people are having for the show. We really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. There's been lots of really wonderful comments and conversation around the first few episodes of the season, particularly my conversation with you, dear Ben. Yeah, it's been really heartwarming, actually. Yeah, it has been very nice. So very thank nice. you. I'm very glad that you, who is listening, is listening. <laughs> mm, yeah. Well done, Brooke. In today's episode, you speak with a first-timer for the show. Yes. A, a wonderful, extraordinary, kind of like a, a, an extraordinary human being. Yes, I would definitely describe yeah. her as an extraordinary human being. And it's actually someone that you put me in touch with. Her name is Hannah Divany. And Hannah is a writer, a very, very wonderful writer, uh, and a disability rights advocate. She's also the editor-in-chief of a publication called Missing Perspectives, and she's someone that you met through some work that you've been doing recently with a different podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been working with the Cerebral Palsy Alliance on a new podcast called Cerebral Conversations, which I host with a very good friend of mine, Andy McLean. So friend of the show. Friend of the show, Andy. And so that podcast is all about just having really extraordinary conversations with people who may be living with a disability or live with someone with a disability in their life. And it's just celebrating these wonderful stories mm -hmm. and, and talking and raising awareness for things like ableism, diversity, advocacy, and yeah, just raising awareness for, for disability as a whole. It's, it, it's been a really fascinating and interesting thing to do. It's now, I think, up to its 12th episode. Okay. So I think that dropped this week and that's sort of the end of season one. It's a new show and like all new shows, they're largely sort of, it's one or done based on how popular it is in the iTunes store. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage you, if you're a friend of Slow Home Podcast and enjoy what we do here, I'd encourage you to go over and just have a listen to a couple of episodes over there. Rate or subscribe if you're that way inclined. Um, that would be really awesome and would um, yeah go a long way to supporting something that I do outside of Slow Your Home. Absolutely. And also, yeah. I mean, I think one of the main goals for the show is to increase the number of conversations around, you know, disability, advocacy, activism. Um, so, you know, getting more ears on that show would be the best way to do that. Be so good. Tell two friends about this show and Cerebral Conversations <laughs> would be amazing. <laughs> but is that is that homework for this week? <laughs> no. Um, yeah, any support would be would be greatly appreciated. We will include a link to that uh, and every other link and resource we mentioned in today's episode in the show notes. I don't actually think I've mentioned this this season, but you can um, head to slowyourhome.com slash season eight and that will take you to all the episodes from this season and um, links and whatnot, including links to Hannah's website and also missingperspectives.com. Now, Hannah and I have a conversation that focuses, it sort of centers on the idea of care and burnout and rest. And I know that most of the conversations I've had this season already and the ones that are coming also tend to get to that 
kind of topic at some point. But this is a really interesting look at those topics that I think everyone is universally kind of grappling with at the moment through the lens of um, living with a disability. And that's not a perspective that we've really explored on the podcast yet. So I'm incredibly grateful to Hannah for her time, but also for her honesty. Mm. And, uh, you know, so that's sort of the the crux of the conversation. But, man, we go places. <laughs> we also talk about how Hannah is taking on Disney. She's currently petitioning Disney to uh, develop a story centred on a princess with a disability. And this is such an exciting movement because she's gained so much momentum since she and I have spoken even. Um, she did a spot on the project and she's been picked up by I think Reese Witherspoon has been kind of championing this cause. So um, I don't want to give it any more away than that, but I will say if that's something that you can get behind as a movement, as a petition, I'm going to include a link to that in the um, show notes too because I think everyone should be signing signing that petition. I, it's just brilliant. It is awesome. She's also nominated this year for Young Australian of the Year. Just recently she had a piece published in Women's Weekly. She is going places, she man. Is. She's also... Um, a mad Taylor Swift fan, yeah. which I have only learnt recently. What I want to get her back to <laughs> talk to her some more. Uh, but she's also done some modelling. I think she did like a um, a campaign for Tommy Hilfiger, mm. I think, recently. Recently. Hannah is a really brilliant person. I mm. just really enjoyed her company a lot. And I, I hope and think that you'll enjoy today's conversation. Let's get into it. Hannah, hello. How are you? Hi, Brooke. It's so nice to be here. Oh, it's so wonderful to have you. I'm really, really thrilled. Now, I want to jump straight into it because okay, uh, doing some research into the work that you do, you have got your finger in a lot of pies. And Yep, I do. <laughs> I guess I'm curious how you view sort of the idea of balancing all of those, you know, balancing work and your advocacy work and just life and living through COVID. What does, mm -hmm. what's your relationship, I guess, with the idea of balance? That's a really interesting question. And it's one that I'm sort of still figuring the, the answer out a little bit, um, especially because something else that you might not know is that I'm technically still at uni. So I am currently completing the final semester of my degree. So I have like a month and a half to go which means that all my assessments are due around about this time. Uh, okay, yeah, so, just another finger in another place. Yeah, it's just like there's a lot of things to, to balance. Like, for example, later today, after we finish recording this, I have to go to a two-hour tutorial and then I have to leave that early because I actually am recording something for radio and it's just like all over the place. <laughs> so what, what are you studying? Sorry. So I'm studying um, arts and international studies. Yep. So I'm majoring in like creative writing and international relations and then doing minors in Spanish and English literature. Right. So, you know, not a, not a broad, not a broad, massive workload or anything. Not at all. No. Not at all. <laughs> um, and the degree is supposed to take four and a half years and I've done it in four because I was really clever and decided that doing five subjects a semester for a while there would be a really good idea. I am grateful at the moment that I'm only doing four because I do not think I could 
yeah handle five and everything else obviously doing uni remotely also brings extra challenges Mm. and just like brain drain I guess the one silver lining of COVID though is that um my travel time is obviously cut way down like before it would take me probably two and a bit hours each way from my house to the University of Wollongong just by the time you like catch public transport and do all the bits and bobs so yeah that was four hours of travel a day that I'm now have back in my schedule which is good that is a silver lining I appreciate that one that's a big silver lining actually um so I guess yeah um in terms of balance it's very much a work in progress and I think recently like over the last couple of weeks I've been sitting there wondering have I like bitten off more than I can chew because sort of coincidentally all of these things that I'm doing in a completely unplanned way have come to fruition at the same time Mm -hmm. so it means that the next month will probably be the busiest I have ever been for a while um but then after uni's over we'll see what happens yeah take a break well that I think that would be really good (laughs) yeah what's your relationship with rest like like how do you feel when you know yeah do you do you struggle with the idea of rest yeah I do Mm. um well it kind of works twofold because I'm a particularly anxious person like I have generalized anxiety disorder and clinical depression and all of those things which means that my brain finds it really really hard to switch off Mm. and I find that when I'm not busy, that's when my brain has a lot of time to sort of think and like wander off the deep end, so to speak, and get me in all sorts of trouble, just like in terms of my mood and stuff. But at the same time, being a physically um, disabled person, like obviously your listeners won't know this because they can't see, but I'm sitting in a wheelchair right now because I have cerebral palsy as a result of that like that brings a lot of fatigue and exhaustion that way so rest is really important and learning not to like punish myself for resting or not Mm -hmm. to see resting as like unproductive has been a really big learning curve Um, especially because like I grew up with two able-bodied sisters and all my peers and friends and family are able-bodied so I was sort of unconsciously like trying to have as much of their life as I possibly could, which yeah. doesn't normally involve napping for two hours during the middle of the day. Um, but I think that's actually really dangerous and harmful to do that, which I'm learning because no matter how hard I try or what I do, like I'm not going to be able-bodied. So really I'm setting my my body and my brain up, up to fail by trying mm. to reach that standard, which has been a really steep learning curve. Yeah, I can only imagine because I think that, you know, even the able-bodied amongst us struggle with the idea of rest. So, you know, when you're, yeah. as you said, have been subconsciously, you know, um, absorbing that messaging and viewing it through the lens of someone who's the majority of your circle is able-bodied. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I can only imagine this, the learning curve must be incredibly steep um do you have you found any 
practices or um, rituals that have helped you to soften into that idea of rest as something that's just a necessity? To be honest, it's just been through kind of doing it, which sounds really strange. But um, as a young kid, especially, I was motivated by a huge fear of missing out. I felt different in so many ways that I didn't want to miss miss out on on anything really which Mm. meant that I often ignored my body when it was yelling at me that like hey we need to rest now or we need to do this thing and then I got to my kind of senior years of high school where the workload sort of went through the roof and my brain went okay now we now we need to rest like now you need to listen to us because if you don't rest you're gonna collapse so um yeah, it's just been through trying to get get used to it and also get my family used to it as well. Because um, obviously, like, as much as they try to relate to my experience, they can't know what it's like. So sometimes it can be very frustrating and foreign for them if my body doesn't um, react in a way that they're expecting or used to. And it, mm. it's just a whole process to like learn together because none of us have ever done this before so right I guess that's where advocacy um I mean when I hear the word advocacy I I often think you know a more expansive kind of idea of the word but I can imagine that that's also just something you personally have had to learn how to do in advocating for your own needs as you become more in tune with them yeah um I think every disabled person or or even like every marginalized person becomes pretty good at self-advocating um and that's born out of necessity because basically you quickly figure out that well um no one's going to kind of do it for you or think uh, along those lines without you sort of nudging them in the right direction Mm. um and I'm really lucky that my family and friends, especially when I was younger, have been great advocates for me because I should backtrack and point out that cerebral palsy is the kind of physical disability that you're born with um, and there's no cure. So I've been living this life in this body for 22 years now. And over that time, my mum has probably been my fiercest advocate. Like it's probably not surprising to you to your listeners that the like burden and I'm doing that in air quotes of kind of care ha- has been gendered towards my mom mm. um so she's she's the one who takes me to the doctor's appointments who would sit for hours in hospital waiting rooms who would do all of that stuff and that's not to say like that my dad did didn't and doesn't play an active role but clearly he was more traditionally the person who was going out to work and doing that sort of thing obviously my parents have taught me how to self-advocate and and I guess it's something I've learned along the way especially because when I was a kid it felt like people would talk about me or at me but not with me Mm. So 
often decisions that were made about my medical care would be made without the doctors or therapists involved actually engaging me in the conversation or making sure that I understood what was going on or getting my concerns like that was left to my parents to sort of figure out and I mean they're not the ones with the medical degrees so they were sort of taking the information and then translating it in a way that I could understand and for a long time I basically thought that like self-advocacy would be as far as I would go because I figured that was just so exhausting and I was like Mm. I only have enough brain space for one person and that's that's me and that's fine um and then I sort of started to realize that um with with cerebral palsy that operates on a spectrum so it basically means that you have everyone from someone who walks a little lopsided and maybe has a claw hand because only one side of their body is affected all the way to people who can essentially breathe and swallow on their own but that's it um and when I was originally diagnosed with cerebral palsy the initial diagnosis was that I would never walk talk or feed myself which obviously by virtue of us having this conversation you can figure out proved incorrect but as a result of that as I've gotten older I've kind of understood that the privilege of like literally having a voice and being able to speak and articulate myself well Mm. is a great one and that I kind of have a responsibility to use it so I kind of more fully stepped into the role of disability advocate last year it's all sort of coincided with the pandemic which is a really interesting correlation like I was doing stuff before then but um definitely being known publicly as a disability advocate has been a kind of weird twist in a pandemic space (laughs) yeah I um we were talking briefly before we hit record about how it is um a really a kind of strange feeling to have landed in this place of busyness and building a profile and becoming really well known, um, but also being locked down. Yeah. Um, how, um, I guess, from your perspective, how has COVID um, or has COVID changed the conversation around disability and accessibility at all? Um, I think so. The interesting thing, like, I, I guess the only way we'll, we'll really know if those changes were like lasting or meaningful is if some of those changes and accessibility options continue after COVID is no longer really a threat. So um, obviously being able to access events remotely and do learning online at your own pace, that's a lot easier for a lot of the disabled community. Um, there's also this unique thing that I've been experiencing recently or like over the course of the pandemic, where I actually have to disclose that I'm in a wheelchair and like that information is mine to decide what to do with, which has never been an option for me before because clearly when you see me out and about publicly, it's pretty obvious. Whereas here, I kind of exist as a floating head and shoulders. So it's up to me whether I disclose that and then like, does that affect people's perception of me? Well, maybe. I don't 
I don't know, but it, I, I, I'd really like to kind of get inside the brain of someone that I've met through Zoom, understand what they thought of me before. And then when I've disclosed that piece of information, has there been any like shift mm. or change? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think um, it is going to be really interesting over the next year or two to see uh, the, the way this sort of formed in my head um, was the remote working situation where we had yeah. been told for many years that it just wasn't feasible, all of a sudden was, and that opens up so many opportunities for people who are living with a disability, for people who live in remote and rural areas, for mums working, mums with kids, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Um, So all of a sudden the old excuses didn't hold water. And I'm really curious and hopeful that the next couple of years we'll see a broadening out and an opening up of the workforce yeah, to, me too. yeah so you know I I think that's going to be really really fascinating and I think in our rush to return back to normal um, I think it's important for anyone who is in a position to make those sorts of decisions or to contribute to the conversations to continue to you know advocate and talk about the benefits to yeah, organizations I think and, so yeah um and like my so just sort of building off that for a second when I was a teenager and you know all all my friends are out getting jobs and they're starting to earn money and have that independence that was an avenue that was really confusing to me because clearly I'm not going to be able to like serve you your McDonald's or I'm not the person you're going to trust with like breakable glassware because that's a disaster waiting to happen or I'm not the person who could maybe fit in the shop to be a retail assistant like in in terms of the length and narrowness of public spaces so there was a lot of space that people are willing to employ teenagers in um, that was really physically and practically inaccessible to me now I was lucky for a year of my kind of teenagerhood from I think 15 to six yeah 15 to 16 kind of that whole period I ended up working for mama for mama for mama mia um the women's media company um and as a result of that I was working remotely before it was cool yeah. <laughs> uh, which is a whole nother thing about like is 15 years old too young to be entrusted with that much responsibility? Do you need mm-hmm. like more concrete mentorship, all that kind of stuff. But that's another thing. And then like after that, it was, well, where do I go from here? Cause I've just done at this stage, like year 11 and 12, I'm at uni now and obviously money is becoming less of a like nice to have and more Mm. of a, well, if you want to start building an adult life, you need to earn this thing. Um, And I will never forget like going to those specialized um, disability employment services like Nova Employment and those sorts of things, those sorts of companies and them saying, Okay, so 
we can help you find a job, but you can't go to uni if you want to help. Really? Wow. And then being like, well, if, if you're going to uni, then we can't help you find a job. I, I'm guessing the insinuation being like that they didn't think that a disabled person could handle both of those things. Right. Which clearly, as we were talking about before, with all the pies that I have fingers in, like I'm quite <laughs> capable of handling quite a lot. Yes. So, yeah, that's a really interesting, strange barrier. Wow, there's a lot to unpack in that. There's um, a lot to unpack, yeah. There, there really is. Um, okay. So what I do want to dig into a little more is you're, in, you're an incredible writer. Um, Thank you. I really, really, I, at your age, you're 22, right? Um, yeah. And this is not at all, you know, an ageist thing to say, only that I'm incredibly impressed with your sense of self in your writing. Thank you. I, I work really hard at Well, it absolutely sure shows. Um, I just reflect back on my own mindset at 22 and um, <laughs> I was a train wreck of a, of a human. Well, <laughs> there are still areas where I'm a train wreck. It's, it's okay. That, that hasn't gone... No, I just, I just really wanted to applaud you because oh, um, you. it's, it's really, it's difficult to pour yourself into the words um, on a page, and I think you do a phenomenal job. Um, and I guess that I want to take that as um, a way to, to lead into the next part of the conversation, which is creativity. And mm-hmm. I think that rest and creativity have such an ingrained, like intertwined relationship. Yes. Um, you know, that we really cut ourselves off from a lot of our most creative potential when we don't ever allow ourselves to rest. Do mm-hmm. you find that some of your creativity kind of blooms under that, those, those periods of rest that you give yourself? Yes and no, because mm. I, I, I guess something else I should sort of explain for people is um as a result of having CP, it basically means that like your muscles and your bones grow at a different rate. So there's constant tightness or spasticity in my muscles. So even when I'm like resting, my body is not technically fully at rest. Yeah. So like I'm sitting here talking to you and I can currently feel like a pull in my hamstrings, a pull in my calves, my toes are standing up like soldiers, all that kind of stuff. Um, so even at my most like consciously restful, I'm not fully rested mm. rested in the way that you, that you or my sisters might be, for instance. But I I do find that rest helps. I keep my phone by my bed because I have a habit of sometimes getting late night thoughts and considering that I can't get out of bed on my own, the only place for me to record them so they are not lost forever or so that my mum and dad actually have a decent relationship with me because they're getting sleep um, (laughs) is to record it on my phone. So I just have this really long note of like random thoughts and like lines that might have floated into my head at some point. 
Um, but yeah, basically I have been writing and creating in some form since I was four. Mm-hmm. That was when I decided that I wanted to be an author, which most people don't know what they want to do that young or stick to it and actually action it. So I feel very lucky that kind of my childhood dream is now something that I'm turning into reality, I guess. Um, But that also comes from the fact that like, I wasn't able to run around or engage in like a lot of the physical play that Mm. defines young childhood. Instead, I was sitting with my, with my mom like watching and like absorbing adult conversation and just like soaking up the world like a sponge so I think um a a lot of my like sense of self or self-possession comes from the fact that I was constantly surrounded by people who would never like um kind of dumb down their thoughts for me if that makes sense yeah. like so when I was sitting there with my mum and her friends or whatever there weren't people being like oh there's a child at the table we probably shouldn't like talk about that but it's almost like and I don't mean this in a bad way at all but it's almost like they would forget I was there which meant that I could literally just be like a fly on the wall and absorb all this stuff and like learn all these words that I didn't know and like Mm. have this really strong vocabulary and I guess one of the other ways that I did that is through just constantly reading like I have so many books there's too many books it's it's a real problem I hear you (laughs) it's like please where am I putting this I'm going to need a library um, but yeah, just stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I think that's really interesting um, and not something that I had had considered before, but, you know, your perspective would have been vastly different to mine yeah. as a young yeah. child. And, um, you know, as someone who had that imagination, that creative kind of spark from birth, I'd say you were like, that was your invitation. That was your like entry point into developing that you know that rich inner world um yeah do you write fiction or do you mostly write nonfiction? bit of both mm-hmm. I kind of the, the, the majority of stuff well actually pretty much 100% of the stuff that you will see from me publicly is non-fiction related um but I do have fiction ideas that are sort of hanging about in the background at the moment though I am working on a book of like personal essay style things awesome because I think um there's a there's a lot that like people want to know or that they like haven't thought about and there's lots of things that I can share but fictionalizing them would be almost like a disservice to Mm. the actual experience like there's a lot of things that are different about my life as you pointed out that I think still deserve to be owned by by me kind of 
fully and completely instead of belonging to a character. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean that like I won't draw on my real life experiences to infuse fictional worlds, but I think first of all, the most important story to tell before I tell anybody else's is mine. Mm. Yeah, I mean the reason I ask, I'm just I'm I know that you're you weave an incredibly rich story in all the work of yours that I've read online um so I can see that there's definitely like that fiction element that imaginative creative sort of work but coming from like from myself I have written three non-fiction books Mm -hmm. um and are now working on something more fictional uh and it's just really interesting (laughs) it's interesting to see like why I ended up shifting into fiction um and I think it's it's kind of Part of it was confidence, I think, to be able to pull together words and, you know, mm-hmm. I, the source material was something that I was comfortable with being, you know, part of my own story. Anyway, I'm just, I'm always really fascinated by by writers. and. But see, then I have the other thing that's like, well, you're 22. If you write nonfiction, like, are people going to read it and be like, yeah, 22, shut the hell up. <laughs> Um, I won't. I certainly won't. No, I no, <laughs> no I know. But it's. I, I get what. You, yeah, I understand what you're saying, though. Like, do you question? You know, is 22 years enough of yeah, like life lived? Yeah. That's why when I'm like, I, I I guess like marketing the book to people, I'm like, this is not a memoir. It is just a collection <laughs> of personal essays. I am not giving anyone advice on how to live their life. I'm not pretending that like I come from some high and mighty place I am literally just recording my experiences and hopefully doing so in like this really vivid detail that Mm. like people can relate to but like that's it (laughs) okay this is so we're not we're not talking self-help we're not talking advice column yeah all right (laughs) I'm not gonna be like the next Elizabeth Gilbert or like Glennon Doyle or something that's that's not me at this stage all right, we will not we will not put Hannah in that category of writer at this point. Um, yeah, don't don't do that. All right, uh, what I do want to do is shift gears a little bit, um, but it is kind of related to fictional worlds and stories. I don't know if I've ever spoken about this on the podcast before, but I'm quite a Disney file. Ben and I are both Disney files. Um, Ooh, yeah, we yeah. love a Disney file <laughs> for reasons that will soon become yes, to everybody exactly. Listening. I think that they're doing a reasonable job over the last few years of starting to include more cultural mm-hmm. diversity in the stories that they're telling. But you are at the forefront of a movement to get them to to really broaden their um, their definition of inclusivity. And you yes. want to bring actually you tell you tell us what you're but, asking Disney to do. Okay, so for context, like to frame this in the the impact that Disney has had in my childhood. My mum was the person who went out and bought all of the Disney films from the, because you used to have to buy them from the vault. They'd only release them then. And then they wouldn't release them for like another Mm. 10 years or something. I don't know. It was some really interesting marketing strategy, but she, she went and bought them all before she had kids just so she like had them. So Disney is a world that I am well sort of versed in and really um, really shaped by, I guess, in terms of like subconsciously learning lots of life's big lessons through 
through characters. Um, but yeah, the, the thing that I'm asking Disney to do is I'm asking them to create a disabled Disney princess. Um, and I've got a petition that's on change.org um, that at the moment has like 42,000 signatures from around the world, which is bananas. Yeah, that's amazing. Not, not at all within the like scope of possibility that I thought. I thought we'd be lucky if we got like a hundred signatures because I was like, yes, probably my family and friends are going to sign it. And like maybe a few of their mutual friends in terms of like people on the outside, but like it's probably not going to get that far. And, and then change.org really pushed it and promoted it and it's now been translated into other languages so that people in other countries can sign it it's just completely blown me away um but the reason I wanted to do that is basically because I grew up without seeing anyone who looked like me in the films I watched the tv the books the games I played the like Barbie dolls are available all that kind of stuff um, and it took until I was about 10 before I saw my first character in a wheelchair that I can remember. And for anyone curious, that was Artie Abrams of Glee. Now, I don't know if we have any Glee fans out there right now. Oh, we do. Okay. So, you, so let me kind of set the scene for you, I guess. I was super excited when, uh, when Artie showed up. I was like, yes this is a guy he sings he has friends he's loving high school it's great this is like reflective of my experience and then like the actor that's cool like he, he can still be in movies and tv and stuff which was stuff that I was really passionate about and then I think it's in the second season I want to say there's like that dream sequence where Artie gets up and dances and I remember seeing that and I, for anyone who's wondering, like Brooke is nodding very sympathetically at the moment because she she knows exactly what I'm about to say. But basically, I saw that and was like, "Wait, what?" Mm. And then got very confused and disheartened because I was like, "You mean he was just acting the whole time? Yeah. He's just playing at my life. Like he can jump out of the wheelchair when the director girls cut." Like, that doesn't feel right. Right. And then, of course, as I got older, like, you become more aware of the fact that, like, there are actually a lot of films and a lot of TV out there that, that do that. And there's also this kind of phenomenon where they op- there's a joke kind of among the disabled community and, and among Hollywood circles, I guess, that says that, like, the quickest way to win an Oscar is to play someone disabled because the amount of physical and emotional transformation that is required for an able-bodied person to play at our lives is such that they had awards for it. Mm -hmm. Now, now obviously there are some circumstances where hiring a disabled actor isn't possible. Like I'm thinking about the theory of everything that movie about Stephen Hawking um, with Eddie Redmayne where like the literal point of the movie is to show his um, kind of the the progression of motor neuron disease from him being fully able-bodied and physically capable to the point where he where he ended up so having someone with motor neuron disease play that role 
wouldn't work because they can't do their capabilities backwards, if that makes sense. So in circumstances like that, it's kind of understandable. The other thing that really annoys me and really annoys a lot of people is the kind of sad disabled person trope. Because, look, to be completely honest, there are parts of my life that suck and there are days where I can't handle it and days where I'm like, I wish this was different, blah, 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 blah. But um, contrary to that, there are also days where there's a lot of joy and there's a lot of things that are in my life that are positive that literally wouldn't be there if I wasn't disabled. Like I remember um, one of the kind of earliest sort of exercises that my parents got me to do um, when this was really bothering me. So when I was like, that 12 13 14 15 where I'm like I just want to be like everyone else and hormones and making it worse and all the things and you're like oh one of the things they got me to do was like okay think about your life if you didn't have a disability what would it look like would you be the same person doing the exact same things except able to run up the stairs and they like took me through it and were like well, no, think about it. If you weren't disabled, that means you wouldn't know this person and this person Mm. and and this thing. That means you wouldn't necessarily value writing or value that kind of stuff because maybe you'd never have found it. Maybe it would be something that was different. Like maybe you'd be playing soccer instead of writing and like you can't really imagine your life without writing now. Like, So it was all these different things about how it wouldn't be me just able to do more. It would literally be a different version of the same bunch of cells. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, our experiences um, shape, you know, our perception of the world and our perspective and um, the things we value. I think that's such a valuable exercise um, in kind of reflecting on that at such a young age I mean that must have been really powerful for you to to kind of recognize that it's not it's not just like you can't change just one thing if we change one thing about ourselves and our we experience have to a lot of things yeah yeah, yeah. um and and obviously like I want to be clear just because I did that exercise doesn't mean that it made everything easy and it was like okay that's gone now no it definitely still came back and it comes back with some sort of like regularity I guess because like the goalposts of life are always moving Mm -hmm. so for instance like my younger sister or my okay so I have two younger sisters and one of them can now drive and is doing all of those things and like the independence and control and freedom that say driving represents for example is something that I will never experience at at least in that way because while there are modifications to be made to cars that would put everything that you do with your feet in the power of my hands um, my spatial awareness is not defined enough for it not to be extremely unsafe for, for 
both me and everyone else on the road were I to be in charge of a moving vehicle that is not a wheelchair. It would just be a disaster. So, I mean, how do you, like, how, how do you process that, I suppose, through, you know? Um, um, yeah, what does that look like? Well, first you kind of get angry. Mm. <laughs> and then you sort of wonder, like, okay, well, is driving that important? Do you know able-bodied people who make the active choice not to drive even though they could? Okay. So clearly it's not like a life or death thing. And then also for a long time, I felt like my life was really quite small. Like I struggled to make friends. I didn't really know what my career would look like because I didn't know what doors were open to me I didn't like relationships are a whole nother messy tangled basket of things that I was like not gonna touch that with a 10-foot pole um (laughs) and just all of these things um and obviously now my life is not small my life is in fact very big Mm. um because everything that I do is not only and not directly in service of me but in service of the fact that I want the next generation of disabled kids to grow up differently than I did and to have someone to look at who they can very clearly and publicly see um, it's also really important to me, and I'll touch on this for just a second, that the avenue of success that is visible to disabled people is more than Paralympic sport. Mm-hmm. And I should clarify, I don't, like, the things that Paralympians do are amazing and incredible, and I think it's great if that's what you're passionate about. But as somebody who grew up pretty consistently being asked some variation of, like, hey, what's your Paralympic sport going to be? Um, I don't know. Like, I don't, my, my initial reaction to that, instead of picking a sport, was like, hold on, you're not asking my sisters what their Olympic sport is going to be. You're not assuming that, like, they even want to go to the Olympics mm-hmm. or that they could because clearly you understand that, like, the Olympics is only for the most dedicated, like the pinnacle of, of athletic achievement and like all that kind of stuff. And it's definitely not for everyone. Like there are a billion and one other careers open to able-bodied kids as opposed to Olympian. Mm. So I was like, well, hold on. How come that's the only one, that's the only path that's visible or that's the only path that like defines a successful disabled person for you. And I guess there's like even more to be said about the fact that like a lot of the narratives around Paralympians are all about overcoming your disability and that drives me nuts because I'm like you can't that's like telling someone you're going to overcome your hair color you can't do that man it's it's a part of you that's like saying uh, yeah um like there's never going to be a any way that I that I overcome 
my disability. There's never going to be one singular action that I do or any action at all ever that means that I suddenly don't have cerebral palsy anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's not overcoming my disability. It's achieving things with my disability firmly in tow. Yeah. Um, is that, do you think, why the, going back to your mention of Glee, of Artie in Glee, like that mm. imagery of him like being fixed was, uh, that's what I found. So, because I rewatched Glee recently. Um, so confronting on the most recent rewatch was like the idea of fixing, like his dream was was to, you know, no longer need his wheelchair. Um, and like, is that the the idea of overcoming kind of, put in Mm -hmm. you know in action and I think the opposite of fixed right is broken yes that's right so the kind of assumption is that if you are disabled you are broken which then if you follow that thought pattern kind of all the way around you are less you are not as valuable you are something to sort of be discarded or like thrown Mm. away or kept Put in um, those, yeah, oh, those like those, sorts of- those categories, you know, that category of Paralympian, like a easily categorized kind of yeah, like sense a, of success or a very neat little box. Like, mm. okay, we, we know what to do with you now. We mm. can put we can put you in here, and we can get enjoyment and entertainment out of you, mm-hmm. which is the other thing, mm-hmm. um, and feel good about ourselves and motivated and inspired, right? Because the fact that you can do that means that oh, we should probably be doing more too. So it's like a whole toxic thing. Yeah. Um, and also, like, growing up, I didn't really see any disabled adults. The only time I sort of would come into contact with disabled adults was in the corridors of, like, therapy appointments or mm. places where I already knew disabled people to sort of be and by an interesting sort of I guess just coincidence the disabled adults that I would see would often have more severe forms of cerebral palsy so they would be able to walk for instance but their speech would be affected Um, which to me is far more severe because I think your ability to move seamlessly through a space versus your ability to be able to communicate and stand up for yourself and express yourself. I think I pretty clearly know which one I value more. Maybe if you'd asked me as a kid, I might not have thought about it so sagely, I guess. I think I would have just jumped because that was the thing I wanted more than anything Mm. um but I've kind of gotten past that now and I'm like okay so having a moving functioning body is not everything if you can't if people aren't listening to you Mm. which I think um kind of ties back into the um, petition that you have pulled together for Disney Mm -hmm. in terms of having like some like a Disney princess with a disability, having a voice, being visible, being, yeah, you know, being a fully embodied character that is celebrated around the world. Yep. Um, what, I mean, 
I sort of get a sense of what that would mean to you as as a Disney file anyway. But what do you think that would bring to um, you know other people, uh, children who are growing up with a disability, to see themselves reflected in some in some way um, by such a massive you know organization? I want to take that back a step and just say the decision to to advocate specifically for a disabled princess was a was a very strategic one like the disney princesses are the ones who show up on bedspreads and lunchboxes mm-hmm. and toys and people have birthday parties and they're the ones that are seen sort of probably most ubiquitously mm. on a global scale so i was like well clearly if we're going for maximum impact this is what we're going for um and then I've sort of developed an argument for the disabled Disney princess that applies to both disabled kids and able-bodied kids because it very quickly became apparent to me that one of the main reasons, I guess, that Disney could lob at me for saying no if they ever came into contact with it was well, we're not just going to do this for disabled kids because we need we, we, we need maximum profitability, right? So w- we need the character to be able to mean something to able-bodied kids too. So that was very quickly a, a, a loophole that I sort of preemptively closed because I'm like, well, okay, so it's great for disabled kids because it literally shows someone being the hero of their own story, going on adventures, having friends, you know, maybe even falling in love, all those sorts of things. But then for any able-bodied kids watching, it teaches them tolerance and empathy. And it means that when they go out into the real world and they see a disabled person, that they'll meet those interactions with less fear and suspicion and instead meet those with like oh I know because they're like princess like insert name here um (laughs) Hannah princess Hannah yeah okay well we'll, (laughs) we could go with that or like oh they can still have adventures or they Mm -hmm. can still like it just really felt important for those kids too because I think um somewhat unconsciously like what we absorb as children obviously shapes the adults we grow into and if we're sowing those seeds of like tolerance and empathy and understanding at such a young age we're essentially setting those kids up to become really great allies in adulthood Mm. which is really important yeah I, I could not agree with that more I um I had a conversation with another guest earlier this morning we were talking about um the pressure that you can feel as an advocate or an activist mm-hmm. to like make the fix completely yourself. But she and you have both actually touched on this idea of a generational shift. And, you know, you plant the seed, you start the conversation and that not only starts to filter through in, you know, the, um, the impact that you're having, but the output of that work of the advocacy work is actually going to be felt with the next generation and the way that they are in the world. And I think there's something incredibly powerful, but also um, 
there's relief there for me when she and I were talking about it. I felt a bit of relief because it doesn't have to be on one person, one, you know, no. one outcome to be the fix. It's just the beginning of this movement that, um, you know, that builds. And I think it's really um, important to see advocacy as a long mm. game. Like I'm very aware that, well, like, for example, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs came out in 1937, I think. That was nearly 80 years ago. And kids are still watching Snow White and still getting the lessons from it. So I'm well aware that by creating something like this, it's not just helping me now. It's helping kids 80 years in the future when I am, you know, somewhere in a history book, hopefully. Um, I have no doubt, Hannah. <laughs> like it, it's not a lot of my advocacy. Like I said, is not about me. I just happen to be the face that has to come attached with it. But my whole goal for literally everything I do is making the world better, so that the kids of the future and the adults of the future don't have to go through what I and other people have. Like. Uh, um, there are a lot of advocates who have come before me that have done a lot of work to get me to the place where I can even speak to you now. Like that's, that's clear, but I didn't grow up knowing the history of those advocates. Like um, disabled history is something that has never been kind of taught to me or referenced in any sort of way. So I've really had to learn that Um myself but my hope is that like as we grow disability becomes more visible which then means it's easier for people to have figures of reference for whatever their future mm. might look like mm. um just to close out because I'm, I'm aware of our time but it's a lot that's a lot like that's a lot to yeah to put to, to, to put, on, put on yourself yes yeah it is yeah um, incredibly admirable and I'm grateful for, for you and for the work that you're doing, but do you um, ever find yourself burnt out or really? Yep. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> do you, how, I guess, how do you combat that briefly? Do you have any kind of anything, that, any idea, any thought that you retreat to or, um, you know, any practice that helps you to kind of recalibrate before you move forward? Sometimes it's taking a break mm. and like literally being like, I am not going to look at my phone. I'm not going to engage with social media. I'm going to go watch a really happy movie or something like that. Or it's n knowing that I'm not the only person pushing the boulder up the hill. Mm -hmm. There are lots of us. And yeah, we're pushing the boulder up the hill, but when you think about it retrospectively, the boulders come a long way from where it was. Yeah. And then I also just remember that, like, I have made a choice to do this. Nobody is forcing me to be a disability advocate. It would be very easy for me to just live my life as a disabled person that no one really saw or heard from. And there's nothing wrong with with living that life by the way like not not everyone has to be an advocate because being an advocate on, 
on a public scale is hard work. It's constant and it's um, in some ways exhausting and you open yourself up to a lot of criticism and a lot of, um, I guess, trolling and just other things like that. So, like, definitely if you don't have the support network around you, do not go into advocacy because it will chew you up and Mm. spit you out. But I think if you can and it feels like something you can handle, then go for it. Um, Yeah, I always just remember that, like, this is working. Like, we are coming a long way. And also, just, like, briefly, whenever I get any sort of negative comment or something like that I always sort of take it as a bit of a twisted compliment because I'm like clearly I have moved outside the echo chamber of people who will always tell me that everything I do is great because they love me and because they kind of have to because you know they're my friends and family like as soon as you are making an impact and reaching enough people there are going to be people that disagree with you but that's a sign that it's working because it's got outside that echo chamber yeah yeah exactly and that's the irony of like of of um using social media and um you know more mainstream media to spread a message is like everyone is available everyone is you know accessible but and everyone has an opinion exactly yeah but I think I think that's incredibly wise because you know to me it, it it shows that you're you've got traction it shows that you are taking up space you know and that your opinion is articulated and it is causing people either discomfort or you know causing people to stop and think um yeah and I don't think there's anything bad in that I think that discomfort and reflection is so so important in us uh, particularly as an able-bodied person um to just start reflecting on how we're showing up and how we're advocating or being allies as well so I'm glad to hear that you are wise enough at 22 to recognize that um, neg- negativity is actually really a compliment. Um, um, that makes me really happy to know that you <laughs> that you got that wisdom. Hannah, it has been absolutely wonderful talking to you. And I have loved this, Brooke. Thank you so much. It's been phenomenal. You're um, you're an incredible, incredible person. And I'm going to include the link to your change petition in the show notes of this episode. So I really encourage everyone listening to to go and sign that. Yes, please. I will love you forever. Thank you. (laughs) If anyone from Disney is listening. Call me. (laughs) Exactly. Hannah is awaiting your call. Yes, please. (laughs) Thank you, mate. Um, You take care. That was, this has been fantastic. All right. Bye-bye. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.